Let's turn together to the book of Acts and to chapter number 8. And we can read once more at verse number 30. Acts chapter 8 at verse 30. So Philip ran to him and heard him reading Isaiah the prophet and asked, Do you understand what you are reading? And he said, How can I unless someone guides me? And he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. And so on, we're basically looking at the whole of the story from verse 26 down to the end of the chapter. And we do remember that in recent weeks we are looking at the way in which Jesus was encouraging the disciples because they were saddened at the news that he was going to leave them. And they were saddened not just because he was, they were going to lose his presence, but they were saddened because he was expecting them uh, to carry on uh, the work that he had begun and how could they possibly do that without him and without his presence with them. And so they were troubled and he is encouraging them by reminding them and promising to them that he will send the helper, the Holy Spirit, the comforter, the one who's going to come alongside of them. And through all of that, They are going to be enabled to carry on the work that he has begun. So we follow the story through and uh, Jesus goes to the cross and he he goes to the tomb. And we follow the story to to the resurrection. And then we come into the book of of Acts and we have Luke uh, continuing the, the history of the gospel where we read something of the birth of the New Testament church. And what we see in Acts chapter 2 is the promise of Jesus in John 14 and 16, the promise being fulfilled. Here are the disciples. They're in a room. And suddenly there is from heaven the sound of a mighty rushing wind, and they were filled with the Holy Spirit. In a mighty, powerful, glorious, public way, the church has been born and the promise of Christ has been fulfilled. And we see the great story in that chapter, that, that in that chapter, in that one day, when people were called to repent and to be baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus, that there were 3,000 people added to the church. What a magnificent, powerful birthday for the New Testament church. When we come into chapter 8 and 10, we we are sort of moving away from the crowd. We are moving away from from the the, the massive gatherings and the thousands being saved. We are coming to think of individuals. That's who we are. That's how God works. It's individuals that God saves. And in this chapter, we have the story of the Ethiopian eunuch, individual number one. In the next chapter, we have Saul of Tarsus, individual number two. In chapter 10, we have Cornelius, individual number three. Three people who are very different in their backgrounds, very different in their conversion, but they are three individuals in which we see the Spirit of God working and in which we see individuals added to the church of Jesus Christ. 
And so tonight we want to, to look at the first of these individuals, this Ethiopian eunuch, and to see here a pattern for personal salvation. And I want to see, first of all, that we have a design. God doesn't work without a plan. He doesn't do anything without coming to it with something that has been settled and sealed and organized before the world ever was. There is design. And we here have, we have Philip and he's having the time of his life in Samaria. He's preaching the gospel. The crowds are gathering around him and they're believing with joy the message that he has. But God has another plan. He is the designer who becomes the director. And when he becomes the director, he comes to speak here in this passage through the angel of the Lord in verse number 26. We see the angel of the Lord regularly in the Old Testament speaking to Abraham, speaking to Moses at the burning bush. We see the angel of the Lord in 2 Kings 1 telling Elijah to go down and to go and speak to this king, to this person. The angel of the Lord is equivalent to God himself working and God speaking. And here he is, the angel of the Lord, speaking to this man, Philip. And he is speaking to Philip because Philip is sensitive to what God is saying. And we know that because in chapter number 6, where the apostles are, are, are so busy with the work of the gospel that they choose to, to set men apart who will serve tables, who will free up their time, and who will do so. They will be men who are full of the Holy Spirit and of wisdom. And we see in Acts chapter 6 and at verse 5 that Philip is one such man. He is full of the Holy Spirit. He is full of wisdom. He is tuned in to what God is going to do, to what God is going to say. He does know how and where God is going to do that, but he is sensitive to what God is saying to him. And in this instance, because of God's design, he gives him a command. Go out of your comfort zone. Go out of the place where, you're, where the word of God is blessed and taking you out of there and rise, go toward the south to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. He's telling him to relocate away from Samaria in the north right down to, to the very southern boundary of the promised land and to do so because God has a purpose. And when we hear Gaza in the New Testament, we hear Gaza in the Old Testament. And Gaza in the Old Testament is one of the five great cities of the Philistines who were great enemies of the people of God. And so in God's design and with God's direction, Philip is moving from Samaria 
down the road, miles and miles away, into the territory which has a reputation of being the place that belongs to Israel's enemies. And that's how the, how the, the gospel works when it crosses boundaries. God sends his people. It's also the way God works when he's going to convert anyone. Because when we read our New Testament, we understand from the words of Jesus himself that we are either of our Father who is in heaven or of our Father who is Satan. So when the gospel is going in God's design to convert, to save anyone, it's the gospel going into enemy territory. And where Goliath is the big image that we have of of the enmity of the Philistines, the the massive giant, is nothing in comparison to to what Satan is as God comes to, to rescue sinners out of the service of Satan and out of the very jaws of death. And sometimes for you and I as individuals. God is speaking to us by his spirit and by his word, telling us that we have to go. It might be to our next door neighbor. It might be to our colleague at work. It might be somebody that we're involved with in the community. It can be anyone but as the people of God, as the church of Jesus Christ that we see here in its infancy as the church, are we sensitive to what God wants us to do? Are we hearing? Are we noticing the prompt of God to do something, to say something, to go somewhere? Philip was filled with the spirit and with wisdom and he was sensitive to God's calling. And in God's calling and in God's design the purpose is simple. There's a passion on that road and that passion is in the heart of God And God is going to speak to that passion through this man, Philip. And when we look at this passion, the truth about him is staggering. (coughs) He arose and went, and there was an Ethiopian, a eunuch, a court official of Candice, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all her treasure. He had come to Jerusalem to worship. What a snapshot we have of of this man. He is an Ethiopian. Ethiopia that is modern day Sudan. We we hear of those who, who, who suffer because of the gospel in Sudan. Here is a person who is from Ethiopia in the Bible, from Kush in the Bible, from modern-day Sudan. And he is a, a, a eunuch. And we cannot hide behind 
what this description means with regard to this man. To put it politely, he is deprived of his manhood. And we may ask, why is that the case? Why is this person deprived of his manhood? Or why did he allow himself to be deprived of his manhood? And the practice in the Orient and in Asia Minor, the practice was that a person would allow himself to be deprived of his manhood in devotion to the service of the pagan god at the pagan temple. It was a symbol of sacrificing everyday life and giving yourself devoted to the pagan temple, setting themselves apart, having that kind of union with all that took place at the pagan temple, that life was lived and life was devoted to that place. He was a eunuch who allowed himself to be deprived of his manhood in commitment to the God whom he worshipped at the time. Along with that, he has a status. He is a man with a position. He is a court official of Candice, Queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all her treasure. He is the Chancellor of the Exchequer to the Queen, Candice, Queen of the Ethiopians. He has now a high position. He has a physical mark that speaks of his devotion uh, to paganism, to idolatry in the past. And remarkably, he is on the way back from Jerusalem. He was worshipping in Jerusalem. He was at the center of gravity of the whole worship system and religious system of the Old Testament people of God. The place to which Jesus came, the place where Jesus was crucified, and the place where this marvelous work is now beginning. And we find that, that he is there to join in the worship of God. Whatever else is true about him, he has a desire for the God of the people of God. And when we think of this man with that desire, there are two great things that we have to understand about him. One of them is an obstacle, and one of them is an inspiration. And the obstacle is quite simple. The person who has lost his manhood is barred from taking part in the gatherings of the people of God. And we go back to Deuteronomy chapter 23 and verse 1, that the person who has been deprived of his manhood, no such person shall enter the assembly of God. That's a real obstacle. He went to Jerusalem despite that. He went to Jerusalem and he couldn't be part of the crowd of the people of God. However close he came, he couldn't be at the center of the worship of the people of God. 
But along with that, there is the hope that comes from the promises of God. And right through the the later prophecies of the Old Testament, we have this scattering of promises. And in Isaiah chapter 11, we have the day of the Lord spoken of, and the hand of God is going out a second time to the remnant that remains in the land of Cush, which is the same as Ethiopia. There is the obstacle of the kind of person that he is, that he's barred by the law of God from entering the worship of God. But yet there is this promise of God that is waiting to be fulfilled. And with all of the noise of what's happened around Jerusalem and the death and resurrection of Christ and the outpouring of the Spirit of God, the promises of the gospel are coming to the surface and they are sparkling in the midst of the darkness for this man as he goes to Jerusalem. The same idea is repeated in Sephaniah chapter 3, where beyond the rivers of Cush, that is beyond the rivers of, of Ethiopia, there are the daughters of my dispersed ones, and I will, they will bring their offering to me. There are roots. The people in Cush and Ethiopia they have roots with the people of God. And God is, is saying that the day will come when these roots will be meaningful because I will come and I will bring them from Ethiopia, from Cush, I will bring them into the very kingdom of God. And here he is on the way back from Jerusalem reading the prophet Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 11, the promises, the prophecy of Isaiah. And so we have the design. And whoever God is going to convert you or convert me or bring us into the kingdom of God, when that desire is stirred up in our hearts, in some way, we're going to see both of these things. We're going to see the law of God condemning us because of our sin. We're going to come face to face with the fact that the wages of sin is death and that we are breakers of the law of God. And that there is nothing we can do about that. And because that's who we are, we cannot enter the kingdom of God. We cannot become the children of God. And along with that, we will have the promises of the gospel. That the call of the gospel goes out, that whosoever will call on the name of the Lord will be saved. There is that promise that, that inspires us. And as, as God works because of his design, as the shepherd goes to seek for his own sheep, as, as God works, so you and I will be working. And we'll know the struggle. And we'll know the struggle against our sinnership. And the marvelous thing is that, that the inspiration that comes from the promises of God doesn't allow our sinnership to cause us to stay where we are 
Because such is the desire that it must come to God, that it must search for God. And tonight we can ask ourselves about that kind of inner struggle, how we come to know that, how we come to understand that, our sinnership, and how alongside of that the promises of the gospel of Jesus Christ are so important. The design, the pattern and the design. Secondly, we have the pattern and the disability. Philip 1, verse 30, the Spirit again said to him, go over and join this chariot. He's sensitive to the command of God the director of evangelism, the person who is orchestrating this whole scene, go over and join this chariot. So Philip ran to him, heard him reading Isaiah the prophet. Reading in the customary way of reading at the time, it was reading out loud. And here he is in his chariot on the way home. Was he discouraged? What, what, what was it? We don't know. But he was reading out loud and he had no idea that Philip, the the evangelist, Philip, the messenger of God, was sent by God to overhear the fact that he was reading the word of God. Nothing is lost upon God. And the very fact that he is reading the word of God confirms to us there is something going on in the life of God of this man and we see the disability because of the way in which Philip engages the eunuch in verse number 30 at the end of the verse do you understand what you are reading it's a simple question it's interesting that, that in the Greek there is so much uh, a connection between, between the two words. It's genosko anagenosko. It's the, the same root word that's used for reading. And the idea of reading is learning over and over again. It's going back to the same place, learning it so well that it will be written in your mind. It's, some of us did that in Sunday school, you had to learn Isaiah chapter 12. You had to come to Sunday school. You had gone over it and over it. You had read it again and again and again. It was in your mind and you could stand anywhere and you could repeat it. Such was the desire of this eunuch that he was doing the same with the prophet Isaiah. He was reading it over and over again to learn it and to learn it well. And so it is with the gospel. All of us here have a certain level of knowledge of the gospel. And as we go through a journey through life and learn the gospel, we have so much knowledge in our minds. Ask anyone here tonight about what the gospel means and the story of the gospel. And we will all explain it in different ways because in our minds, in our thinking, all of our lives, we've learned the gospel. 
We've heard it over and over again. We've read the same passages over and over again. We're familiar with the, the word of God. And that's where this man was trying to get to. And it's so important to be familiar with the word of God. To read, to read again, to learn it, and to learn it well, and to learn its detail, and not to overlook the detail, and not to lose out on the, the important aspects of the detail when we rush through a reading instead of pausing and taking a slow step through what we are reading. But the question, do you understand what you are reading? Do you have an experience that arises from the things that you have read? Is all the knowledge that you have of the prophecy of Isaiah, is it so processed in your mind, is it so ordered in your thinking that it has come to affect you in your heart and to, to bring you to appreciate the great truths that are truly there? Has your life been changed? Has your experience become the experience of the people of God through the reading in which you are engaged and that's a critical question for you tonight it is a critical question do you understand the gospel and when we look at the answer we will realize that understanding the gospel it's not about our learning. Because what does the eunuch say? We see that he's very convinced of his own inability and disability. How can I? I have no power, I have no ability, I have no strength, I have no means. I've got nothing in myself that enables me to understand what I am reading. It's impossible for me to understand what Isaiah is saying. And it's so much part of the way in which God brings us salvation that he comes to us not only to persuade us of our sinnership, but to persuade us of our absolute inability and the disability that we have within us because of our sin that we cannot understand gospel. How can I, can you, can you understand, can you say that you understand? Because the evidence of your understanding of it is the fact that you have an experience of it and that your life has changed so that you are now the child of God. Can you say that you understand? Coming face to face with our complete inability to understand what the gospel is saying. And his response includes something so critically important. He is not sitting there in a pew saying, I can't do anything. No, he is sitting in his chariot, he's saying, I can't do anything, but I know that somebody else can. And, and that's, the, that's the pattern that we have in salvation. 
He reaches out from his own hopelessness and helplessness and he says, unless someone guides me. He is looking outside of himself. And when I think of the words of Jesus in, in, in John chapter 16, and I remember and remind myself and remind yourselves of the last promise that he said to the disciples in John chapter 16 when he said to them with regard to the spirit of truth, when he comes, he will guide you into all truth. Unless someone guides me. It's not someone like himself who knows a story better. The pattern of salvation is such that that someone is the help that comes from God alone. And it's reaching out to God in his helplessness as he engages in this conversation with Philip. The disability. The place to which God brings us in our own Gaza experience, if we can speak of it like that, where we can't understand and where we can't believe and where we're not leaving it at that, where we're reaching out to God and know that God can do for me what I cannot do for myself. And in many ways, it is at that moment that his life changes. In other words, it is a life-changing moment when we say to God, I cannot, but you can. And the person who has come to experience salvation has in some way come to that point. Have you come to that Gaza moment? Have you come to that point at which you are reaching out because only God can do what you know you need so urgently and so desperately? The disability. And finally, we have a deliverance. We have a rescue mission. It's not another chariot. It's the messenger of God who is filled with the spirit and, and with wisdom. He invites Philip, invites Philip to come and sit with me in the chariot. And he goes. And the passage that he is reading is what is before us in verse 32 and verse 33. And there are three things that are striking from these words that would have been striking to him. And the first of these is the innocence of the person who is suffering. Like a sheep he was led to the slaughter, like a lamb before its shearer is silent, so he opens not his mouth. The innocence. I see Jesus going to the cross in God's design and in God's purpose. He is the one who is led like a lamb to the slaughter. He is the one who is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He is the one who lies down and allows himself to be nailed to the tree before it's erected between heaven and earth. He is the innocent one. There is also the fact that there was no justice in his death. And we have seen that recently. The many ways in which we see injustice here 
the person who has done everything perfectly correct in relationships with other people and in his relationship with God, there are no injustices. He has given to God and given to others everything that's required of him in his relationship with them. And there is nothing but injustices seen in the death of the Son of God, the Lamb of God, as he is hanging on a tree. And the third thing is, who could do such a thing? Who can describe this generation? What kind of people would do this to this person? And indeed, we, we can see the very same thing, the, the very question arising with regard to the Son of God as he goes to Calvary's cross. Who could do such a thing? And he's reading these words. And the question, the obvious question, the popular question, about whom, I ask you, does the prophet say this about himself or about someone else? The popular opinion was that it was the prophet himself or that it might be the people of Israel. There is no thought of it being anyone else other than Isaiah or the people. But of course, Philip knew, and we know, that the words are about the servant of Jehovah in Isaiah chapter 53, that he is the one who, upon him God laid our, our sins, that he is the one who made his soul an offering for sin, who died in our place. So that when the law says that we cannot come into the kingdom of God or the church of Christ. When the law says that, the cross has the answer. He became a sin offering. He cancels out the very thing that is that locks the door on my entrance into the kingdom of heaven. And when he has done that, he shall see his seed. He shall see his children. He will see people born into the kingdom of God. And here is this eunuch. And Philip, we don't know what he said, but he preached Jesus starting with the scripture that was here. And we can hear the words of Peter uh, who, who set the pattern for preaching the gospel. This Jesus whom you have crucified God has made him both Lord and Christ. They were cut to their hearts. And the message simply was, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins, and you will receive the promise of the Holy Spirit, the gift of the Holy Spirit. That's the package. There is no other gospel. And as Philip wrestles with these words, that speak of the innocent sufferer, that speak of the injustice of his death, that speak of what kind of people could do this. He is confronted with the good news that Jesus died for the sins of the world, that these words are not about Isaiah. They are not about the children of Israel. They are about the Son of God. 
And the only thing that the children of Israel have to do with the cross of Jesus and with the suffering of Jesus is that he is bearing the sins of his people. And as soon as the eunuch hears the gospel, he sees water. What hinders me from being baptized? He has heard the message, repent and be baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord, says Paul in Romans 10, and you believe in your heart that Jesus raised him from the dead, the word that is near you, that is in your mouth, if you believe these things, and here is the eunuch filled with the good news of, of the gospel that, that so corresponds to, to his hopes and to his sinnership that everything now falls into place for him because he has been guided to understand what the word means. And immediately he was baptized and he went on his way rejoicing. Joy. The joy of salvation. The fruit of the Spirit is love. Joy. Rejoicing in the Old Testament is consistently in the light of God's salvation. He had nothing less than the joy of salvation. And perhaps as someone who read Isaiah so often, perhaps he remembers the words of Isaiah chapter 12. The Lord God is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. And with joy I will draw water out of the wells of salvation. Hearing the, the rumbling of the, the refreshing water, as it were, of the Spirit of God and the way in which it comes into his heart to fill him with that joy which he cannot contain. He carries on on his way home to the palace to take up his duties. And no matter his physical scars, no matter his law-breaking, he goes with the joy of salvation. And may God help us tonight to, to discover something of, of this journey for ourselves and to understand the way in which God confronts us with our need leads us from our need to the person that alone can supply our needs and gives to us hearts filled with joy, with the wonder of the salvation that we have so freely offered in Jesus Christ, the only Saviour of sinners. May God bless his word to us. Let us pray. <coughs> Most gracious God, we do give thanks to you for your purposes, for your plans, for your power, for the pathways in which you walk and work here in this world, and for the way in which you do so for people who are lost in the world, uh, and to bring them to be the people of God. We pray that you bless your word to us tonight so that we may be on that journey with you, and that we may have come to 
that great life-changing crisis moment where we reach out to you and where we discover the fullness of your salvation that will give to us joy and gladness in our hearts today and for every day that lies before us and be at last numbered with the people of God who shall appear before God in Zion full of joy, everlasting joy on our heads. Bless us, we pray, so that, that may be our experience tonight and in days to come and when you return at the end of time to gather your people to be with yourself. Hear our prayer and accept us. For Jesus' sake. Amen.